This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Had a dream, you and me in the war of the end times. And I believe California succumbed to the fault line. We heave relief as scores of innocents die. Welcome one and all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, the uh, last episode, I believe, of, of October. Yes, yes, gentlemen? Uh, no, it's actually the first episode of November. Oh, will it? Is it? Yeah, is we're, it? we're, we're, in, the on we're in the future, man. Oh, man, that weird temporal distortion <laughs> um, gets me every time. Anyway, welcome to November. Um, I'm still in October, but you're in November, so you know what? Welcome. Um, I'm I'm David Grubbs. I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in, well, McPherson, Kansas. Um, I just got my nameplate on the door, so I'm feeling pretty good. How uh, exciting. Yeah. Um, the one who's so excited about that is uh, Michael Farmer, who is an assistant professor of English at Crown College in the awesomely named St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? Uh, I'm doing well. You know, all... Uh... All, all Minnesota cities are pretty awesomely named. We, we have a lot of of crazy names up here. Coon Rapids well, I, I, and uh, Blue Earth, Saint Cloud. I like oh, that one. Saint Cloud. Saint Cloud. That's, that's kind of see. I, I'd always heard that one mentioned on the Prairie Home Companion, and I yeah. assumed that he'd made that up. Nope. It's also where Marshall Erickson from How I Met Your Mother is from. Oh, okay. Huh. All right. I, well, I also to, with us. I wanted to make a declaration before we go too far into this, which is that I am uh, no longer going to be using portmanteau because I feel like they they have been uh, done to death in our society. Which means we are now, as far as I'm concerned, called the Christian Humanist iPod Broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still going to say podcast, Michael. Yeah, and I think you need to chillax. <laughs> yes. Well. <laughs> I need to chill out and relax. The, the, I agree. The one who's recommending chillaxing, uh, dear listeners, you probably recognize the dulcet tones of Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English from Emmanuel College in the not as cool as St. Bonifacius, but still pretty cool named Franklin Springs, um, which I'm always imagining like Ben Franklin jumping out of surprising people like Franklin Springs. It becomes a phrase. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sentence as well as a town. Yes, precisely. So, <laughs> how are you, Nathan? I am doing well. I'm actually recording from the Gilmore house this morning, drinking uh, coffee out of my Christian humanist Thomas Aquinas mug. Most sweet. excellent. Yep. Oh, yeah. Cheap we totally have mugs price. here. You know, <laughs> uh, you may not have noticed, but there is totally link in uh, the right-hand, you know, side of our blog and such. And, you know, you can click there, get a mug. It's pretty sweet. 
Get we actually mug. do get a little bit of a cut of that, D- but David, we haven't yet made enough money on them for them on it for them to actually cut us a check. <laughs> D- David, I have noticed that there are you have taken out the option to make the uh, prints into anything other than the standard white mug. Because I was going to get a Kierkegaard mm. travel mug, but I couldn't do it. Uh, I did that because um, if I permitted them to do to switch it around from from object to object it would have also permitted them to add their new their own captions and alter the artwork i see well i don't want that yeah and i don't want people you know making their very own custom the christian humanist podcast is stupid mug anybody who (laughs) has that much internet about our ipod broadcast really needs to rethink their life (laughs) well yes yes I, i i just you know there's, you know, there's haters. Haters going to hate, you know? <laughs> wow. Anyway, uh, housekeeping. I know we've gotten some some feedback lately, so apparently, which, which, which you guys picked up on, and I didn't because I made the mistake of having, well, podcast email forward to the, to the, the email account that I don't check as much. But, yeah, catch me up on this, guys. Yeah, this, this mail comes from somebody named Doug, who I think all of us were pleased to know we don't know. So Doug is a stranger to us, which, you know, I like it when people... Don't, people don't take that the wrong way, Doug. <laughs> well, a stranger's just a friend you haven't met, right? But I'm, I'm always glad for people we don't know listen, because it means we're getting out there somehow. Um, he has mm-hmm. three points. Uh, number one, I haven't listened to all the episodes, so forgive me if someone has already made this suggestion, but have you seen the Monty <laughs> Python episode where, instead of debating the existence or non-existence of God, a clergyman and a college professor wrestle for it? He has included a link. I was wondering if you could do that with Nathan and Brian McLaren. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! <laughs> well, you know what, Doug? I think it's time to get our wrestle on. So I'm looking at you, Brian McLaren. That's right. Nate Mad Dog Gilmore is challenging you to step into that squared circle and face your doom. It's Mad Dog. I'm going to bite your leg. I'm going to tear you up. Oh yeah, brother! <laughs> See, my my guess is if you did have to, if you did wrestle with Brian McLaren, he would stop in the middle and like pour a cup of tea and ask you uh, ask you if you wanted to go to lunch instead. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, we we could set the terms. We could wrestle over the true nature of Plato and Aristotle, but then we get in the ring, and I'd say, "All right, hit my cheek so I can turn the other one." And he'd say, why don't we just stop being violent? I'd say, hit my cheek, come on. And he'd say, let's stop being violent. It'd be the most boring wrestling match anyone ever saw. Yeah. But, you know, I I always look for opportunities to use my professional wrestler voice, so now I've done so. You do it on a service day in your classes? (laughs) Only for freshman classes. That, that, well. His, His second point, he says, now for a less serious suggestion... I would be interested in listening to an episode about Christian perspectives through the past two millennia regarding God's creation and perhaps exploring what contributions these perspectives have made to the modern environmental movement, if that can be defined, and or more likely what the movement could stand to learn from them. The introduction of the Green Bible, published by HarperCollins, has a nice collection of quotes by a number of folks like Basil the Great, Julian of Norwich, Jonathan Edwards, T.S. Eliot, and so on. I realize they are only quotes out of context, but it's a good representation throughout the centuries. One of my favorites has always been the poetry of Hopkins. Why haven't we done an environmentalism episode, guys? Now, David, I think you did an episode on literary genesis. 
Yes, I did. I did. First but season. We didn't. We didn't really delve into the whole. Uh, what does man's stewardship of creation actually entail? Right. Right. It, it was more of a curator episode where we sort of looked at different creation stories and that sort of thing. So I mean, I think it's a good idea for an episode. We might. Yeah. We might work that up sometime. So thanks for the suggestion, Doug. And keep listening, humanoid. <laughs> he says one last thing. Uh, your episode on fantasy and sci-fi has enticed me to return to the genre after a 20-year hiatus. David, have you read Ted Williams' Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn series? Reading it now and loving it. Are you familiar with that? I, I started the, uh, the Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn series. Uh, oh, let's see. Back when I, I think I was, it was my senior year in high school. But my local public library only had the first volume and it's i think a three or four book series they only had the first volume and uh doug knows how thick these things are uh, these are some <laughs> fat tomes man um i enjoyed it i thought there was uh some really uh some really good work of uh well what talk what tolkien calls secondary creation a really well imagined uh fictional setting um, interestingly enough, they've got uh, kind of a, a sort of an alternate Earth, uh, Holy Roman Empire, complete with a uh, a Christianity that is uh, somewhat gone astray and needs to be called back to its roots. Um, it was interesting, but I never finished it. I I, I, um, I I enjoyed it, but then when the other books were not forthcoming at my local library, I lost the thread of it and haven't gone back. Um, Sounds like uh, Doug finds it worthwhile enough that maybe I need to go visit it again. Ooh, it had some yeah. sweet, it had sweet cover art. Are you are you gonna keep <laughs> doing that? Oh no no no! I, <laughs> is the whole Hogan or a Macho Man? Uh, it's an odd amalgam of both, which kind of tells you when I stopped watching professional wrestling because I'm sure those guys have been out of the business for 20 years now. Well, Macho <laughs> it, it, Man it sounds died. like a pretty good gestalt wrestler to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll stop now. I apologize. <laughs> I just got on a roll. All right. Are you I'll, eating I'll Slim Jims the... over there, Nathan? <laughs> I'll do the rest of the episode in an English accent so I sound reasonable. <laughs> mm. We really do need to do that sometime. That would be hilarious. Do the My whole English episode. My English so bad, though. Like, I don't do voices very well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't do one consistently. It starts out. You know, I, I start off sounding like a BBC reader, and about halfway through, I become a Beatle, and then and then it just gets sillier from there. I yeah, see, sound mine. I sound like Bert from Mary Poppins drank too much wine, <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of drift between uh, Richard Dawkins and Mick Jagger. So I, none of those sounds especially appealing. You're not actually making it sound less fun to me. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. saw Hugh, I saw Hugh Laurie on some uh, some talk show, and he was he was saying that the Dick Van Dyke accent in uh, Mary Poppins was an act of war. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I saw a uh, oh shoot now I can't remember that the late night talk show host Craig uh, the Scotsman Ferguson. There we go. He was talking about his awful English accent on the Drew Carey show. And he referred to it as revenge for Star Trek. <laughs> we have gone far afield. Yes, 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 we have. Uh, so it, we've it, got a rather it, serious it, topic today, too. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> we do. We do. We're, we're well. We're we're trying to stave the end off. I think that's what's happening here. <laughs> there you um, go. Uh, we have had other feedback on our blog to uh, yeah, our web blog. blog posts. Yes, the web log, um, Michael. Uh, that 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 has happened. Um, we we uh, implore your forgiveness, uh, all of you wonderful commenters who kept up the serious threads of conversation going. We just really think the wrestling is funnier. So, <laughs> so that's what we led with. And also, I just want to say that I, I reviewed a book on the blog that is a fine little book. It's one that I do recommend to our listeners. Uh, it's by Matthew Anderson, and it's called Earth and Vessels. Really nice little serious but accessible theology book. Cool. And and a positive review for once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he must not quote Plato. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, actually he does, and he says that people don't give Plato enough credit. Now, now it all uh, makes sense. Uh, well, yeah, all, yeah. He was he, on your pit site automatically. Right, he, he was also a student of John Mark Reynolds, so I mean, of course okay, he's going to give Plato the benefit of the doubt. That helps. <laughs> all right. We, we've really, we've really got to, well, we've got to start this thing so we can end this thing. There you go. Um... Our topic this week is uh, the apocalyptic uh, as a genre and apocalypses in general, um, inspired by uh, Harold Camping of uh, Family Christian Radio's um, badly off prediction of the rapture on uh, October the 21st. Um, if that happened, it was incredibly subtle and I wasn't included. Um, David, Which I read means, that he actually, in wow. private, said that he now realizes you can't predict the the date of the rapture. Well, it's about time. Right. <laughs> it is now time for him to come out in public and admit that. Yeah. yeah. I also um, want to say that I am well enough versed in the theology of of Harold Camping and of uh, dispensational premillennial. Uh, persons in general to realize that the rapture is not exactly the same as the end of the world, um, but it is kind of God's opening act <laughs> in the end of the whole end of the world sequence in that theology. So, um, well, It's the opening you know, act if you subscribe to pre-tribulational, pre-millennial well, that's 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 basically my point. That's Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's my okay, point. Okay, guys, my, my eyes are glassing over. This is not Christ the center. Uh, all right okay okay all right anyway Carl, no, I'm sorry. C C camden Busey, if you were listening yes i did just throw a bad joke your way faithful <laughs> and i liked it <laughs> yeah okay all right my point being that uh yes i know the rapture isn't the end in harold camping's theology but by golly i'm still going to use it as an excuse to you know eventually talk about all kinds of end of the world type things cool um First, though, uh, I want to toss a question your way, Michael, um, and just ruminate briefly on uh, some ways that we use the words apocalypse and apocalyptic. Well, I wouldn't have really known how to answer this question a few weeks ago, but I happened to be reading a book about Walker Percy and the apocalypse because all of his books are in some way about the apocalypse. So I'm going to use mm. the definition the author of that book gives. The book is called Walker Percy Books of Revelations. The author's name is Gary 
I have no idea how to pronounce it. C-I-U-B-A. Chiuba? Sayuba? I don't know. So Sounds if, good to me. If he's listening, I apologize <laughs> for not knowing how to pronounce your last name. Anyway, the distinction is not so much between the apocalyptic and the eschatological as between the apocalyptic and the prophetic, because mm. prophecy suggests a poor consequence unless people change their ways. So you see this all the time in the Hebrew Bible, right? Unless, uh, unless Nineveh repents, it will be destroyed. Mm. Apocalypse doesn't offer that chance to change. These are things that are going to happen regardless of what you do. This is the this is a it, it's prophecy that's set in stone rather than conditional. So, um, apocalypse is not really the common sense uh, or common common usage of that term. Which usually when people say apocalypse, they mean the end. But here's what uh, the author of the book says. The apocalyptic literature of the Old and New Testament makes a vision of the end the beginning of vision. The eye is the eye. The eye, first person pronoun, is the eye, like the organ. A privileged and private witness to divine mysteries. In its most radical sense, apocalypsis causes an unveiling that transforms ordinary sight into sacred insight so that the visionary sees somewhat as God does. You see that very clearly in the book of Revelation. Right, right. John... John is not only uh, given these visions, he is told exactly what to write down. So apocalyptic mm-hmm. literature talks about the end of what is, but it only does so in order to unveil a new existence afterwards. So in the deepest sense, the apocalyptic, is in, this, in, the, in the way we normally use that term, doesn't really matter. And what's important is the post-apocalyptic. And of course, as I said, that's not how the word is usually used. So when you think apocalypse, especially in popular culture, you're definitely talking about the end of things as they currently stand, but if there's anything after that, it's usually not much worth hoping for. So if you can think of the <laughs> Mad Max movies, or if you haven't seen them, you can think of Tom Petty's You Got Lucky video, which is just a ripoff of the Mad Max movies. And you have this kind of desert wasteland where people are fighting it out over water and gas. And I, to be honest, I've never seen the movies, so I don't know anything beyond that. I have seen the video. <laughs> that's a, that's a, but right. Tupac also has a Mad Max video. But but that's not really what the post-apocalyptic is supposed to be <laughs> in religious terms. The post-apocalyptic is a new garden, and you're supposed to picture the new garden after the current garden has been turned into a desert. And strictly speaking, and I, I know that I know that Nathan is going to get into this, so I don't want to say too much about it. But strictly speaking, it's the last chapter of the Book of Revelation that's really the most important one. Mm-hmm. The new heavens and the new earth are are more important than Armageddon, more important than the beast. It's all looking toward that, and these are the things that have to happen for that to happen. Now, even though I have distinguished between apocalypse and prophecy. Typically, apocalypses are given by a prophetic voice, right? So you have John on the Isle of Patmos. He's given this vision by God. Of course, the vision is important because the root of the word apocalypse means uncovering or unveiling. I think that's what it means. But the destruction he prophesies is really only the beginning of the apocalypse, and the best is yet to come. And that's something I think we we typically forget when we talk about apocalypse. Or it's something I typically forget when I talk about apocalypse. Mm -hmm. No, certainly, certainly. Well, it's it's easy to to make that mistake, though, right? I mean, we if we look at John's apocalypse um, through, I don't know, the eye the 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 eyes of, of kind of a, a golly gee whiz kid, you're going to focus on the multi headed beasts and stars running into the ocean and these weird locust creatures coming out of the pit and those seals. What are those about? And all that. 
so you know moon turned to blood oh god um you know that there there's there's something about all that stuff in the middle that really draws the attention and captures the imagination um, and, and it's also the part that's the hardest to interpret right oh yeah <laughs> so pe- people don't tend to disagree on what the last chapter is talking about but when when you get to uh, mm-hmm. the first 21 chapters there's all sorts of interpretations right uh, right most of which are wrong <laughs> most of which have to be wrong, well right? A very Ciceronian insight. Anything you want to toss in here, Nathan? Yeah, all I was, all, all I will add is that the Greek word apocalypsis uh, gets translated into the Latin revelatio. Uh, yeah. So you know, if someone asks you, "Do you believe in the apocalypse?" the proper answer is yes. It comes right after Jude. Um, <laughs> you know, beyond that, uh, you know, I think Michael's pretty much got it there. That I mean, the apocalypse as a literary genre, which I'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, really does rely on this vision of history in which God ultimately set things, sets things right uh, in a way that eludes the cyclical history that is fairly common in the ancient world up to, really up to the prophetic era, and if you want to get real technical, up to the Second Temple period. Well, you've alluded to it, so I think we should probably go ahead and make the transition. Um, I frequently, uh, th- these days I hear more and more about the apocalyptic, the, the apocalyptic as a distinct literary genre. Um, but the only examples that most Christians have any familiarity with are, are those in the Bible, um, Daniel, uh, and you know, the book of revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was actually kind of surprised as a youth to, to hear that, there were any others. I'd, I'd always kind of thought of those books as so uh, not utterly unique because they seem to to kind of be the same kind of thing together. Right. But I didn't know they were in conversation with anyone else. Mm-hmm. So what are these other apocalypses that actually let us come to the biblical text with some idea of the generic traits and tendencies of the apocalyptic? Well, first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about proto-apocalyptic, which, of course, is not how those texts think of themselves. They think of themselves as prophecy. Uh, but you have certain passages in, uh, especially Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, and to some extent Zechariah, uh, in which you have very complex symbolic narratives uh, that seem to be alluding to political historical happenings by means of these, like I said, parades of symbols, really. Now, when you get into the Second Temple period, and by Second Temple I mean that period between the rebuilding of the Jerusalem Temple during the the Persian hegemony and the destruction of the Herodian Temple in A.D. 70, in that span of years, you know, a few centuries, you have the rise of a fully developed apocalyptic genre. Some of the big examples of this, uh, the the book of First Enoch, uh, the War Scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and, of course, the Christian apocalypse, which, because it's the most famous one, lends its name to the literary genre. Now, the sort of classical definition of it was formulated by J.J. J. Collins, a New Testament scholar, and it reads thus, An apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation 
and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. All right, so let me break that down a little bit. Uh, yes, I will. Uh, first of all, it has to be it has to involve a human recipient. So, for instance, the Book of Job, in which the narrator narrates scenes from heaven, is not considered apocalyptic. Uh, but Daniel, in which the prophet himself is taken up into the heavens to see the heavens, is apocalyptic. Uh, it has to be temporal. In other words, it has to have a storyline. Uh, so, for instance, the end of Dante's Paradise is not, technically speaking, apocalyptic because there is no passage of time there. On the other hand, the end of Purgatory, in which Dante sees a procession of symbolic critters that indicate the end of his Florentine enemies, to, be, to put it very bluntly, uh, is apocalyptic. Okay. And finally, uh, it has to envisage, envisage something eschatological. And that word eschaton, also a Greek word, ind indicates the end of things. Now, that could be the end of space and time, as often we think of apocalypse. It could simply be the end of things as we currently experience them. And I'm intentionally avoiding the REM phraseology of that. Um, but it is something that is a complex of literary characteristics uh, it's something that we definitely see in a number of texts, especially from the Second Temple period, like I said. But then it is a genre that gets picked up in later literature, as we'll discuss later in the episode. So, for instance, the first six chapters of Daniel are generally not considered apocalyptic. Chapters uh -huh. 7 through 12 are. All right. Is there anything else that you'd want me to, to expand on a bit, David, in that whole matrix of apocalypticism okay you haven't have to uh browse any in this book of first enac or book of wars or whatever it was well actually I, I took a course in seminary on the dead sea scrolls so i actually read the the war scroll in its entirety and it's a fascinating parallel uh to the new testament apocalypse precisely because so many of the symbols run in common between the two, but what it lacks is that Christocentric sense that it is the love of Christ that will ultimately redeem the world. Instead, it is entirely a violent struggle between the sons of light and the spawn of darkness. Uh, it is a battle fought with swords and shields, which if you're familiar with the text of Revelation, what you've got there is a series of battles in which the two armies line up it's over before anyone actually fights. Uh, so, I mean, the the Christian apocalypse is decidedly different, and it's different precisely because of Christ. Again, yeah, uh, and, and the book I read pointed that out as well, that we need to be careful not to think of the book of Revelation as anything other than a love letter. Right, which, right. Which is, in and, the end, what it is. Right, and what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, when Friedrich Nietzsche, who's probably the most famous atheist commentator on revelation took a look at revelation uh he thought it was you know this utterly brutal poem of ressentiment and you know uh it was the sign of small-minded and you know wicked souls uh and that really held some water until we discovered these other apocalyptic texts <laughs> and, and we discovered you know exactly what the uh conventions of the genre were and really just how subversive the book of Revelation is in that apocalyptic genre. Mm. That's interesting. Cool. Well, it sounds like the examples that you cited so far seem to be uh, coming from, you know, coming from the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the same one that the, you know, the Daniel sits within and that uh, John's apocalypse rises neatly out of. Certainly. Um, do, did other Near Eastern cultures that were around the Jews, like Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Canaanites or whatever, or I don't know, the, the, the cultures that surrounded Christianity, Greeks and Romans and so forth, I mean, did they have any notion of the center uh, of the end of the world? Um, I mean, are there any texts that we can point to in these cultures that seem apocalyptic um, in, in any kind of broad sense? I want to preface my answer by saying that I am by no means an expert on the ancient Near East. Uh, so if we if we have any experts listening, or if Nathan would like to add to this, they can feel free. I am open to correction. But as Michael far, doesn't spend much time in the Levant. <laughs> I could not find a whole lot about apocalyptic literature and other in non hebraic cultures prophecy in general of course was rampant in the ancient near east to the point where some scholars have suggested that the hebrews basically just stole all their prophecy from other cultures uh but by and large those prophecies seem to be this worldly um and a good example might be the egyptian book of the dead where an individual mm -hmm. goes through all this stuff eventually he ascends to the heavens he becomes a god and the world itself rolls on largely unchanged um as I said, I'm not an expert in the ancient Near East. I wonder if they subscribe to the ancient Greek view of time as cyclical. Thus, the things that are happening now will continue to happen for all of eternity. In that case, apocalypse would have granted them a certain hope, right? Because it would be an end to this vicious cycle. You would have history toward an end, teleological history, instead of just right. this kind of hopeless uh, repetition of worldly events. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I, I, um, I'm not an expert, so if if there are other ancient Near East apocalypse, apocalypses, I'd love to hear them. Right. I mean, one of the things that really distinguishes the Jews from other Near Eastern or Levantine, whatever adjective you prefer, cultures, Michael, is that you've got a particular sense of theology there that just isn't present in Persian or Egyptian or Babylonian uh theologies, and, and, and namely it is that there is a singular God who is providentially causing harm and good to the chosen people. Uh, so, so the, and the, the, the difficulty here is that not a lot of people were writing abstractly about theology in the ancient Near East, so you have to sort of gather what you can and infer. Uh, but the governing way to think about gods and nations in the ancient world really is that if your god is defeated, no, if your nation is defeated in battle, that means that the nation who beat you, their god also defeated your god and threw your god down. Uh, so, I mean, you know, when the Jews are in exile, they've clearly been whipped by the Babylonians, and all of a sudden you have this prophecy coming from Isaiah 40 to 55 saying, uh, you know, your punishment is over. This is a category that is radically new, uh, to the surrounding area, you know, the idea that a singular God uh, would somehow let his people be punished by means of political events, this was an entirely new way to think about politics. Now, it's, it's something that doesn't remain uniquely Jewish for very long. Uh, famously, Cyrus the Persian picks it up. Uh, we know because of the uh, Cyrus Cylinder that when he marched on Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, pardon me, when he marched on Babylon and took it over, his official propaganda stance was that 
your god Marduk uh, is punishing your king, throwing him down and placing me in his place. So therefore, Marduk is still in control, but I'm your new king now. Talk about knowing the system and playing it, huh? Oh, Cyrus was a genius in so many ways. I mean, he's he's one of my favorite ancient dictators. I mean, he <laughs> I mean, he really is. I mean, he he was just wicked smart. <laughs> now, am I am I right in in considering the the Zoroastrian religion to be apocalyptic in some sense that there will be some kind of struggle at the end? Uh, I know nothing yes. about Zoroastrianism. <laughs> Yes, well, yes. I mean, there are Zoroastrian texts that point towards that final struggle. Okay. And I mean, so, I, I, the names of them I've forgotten. Those are from my seminary days, which is more than a decade behind me now, so. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, uh, it, it seemed as if, you know, there, uh, I, 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 that I do remember reading about that, and I, I remembered that last night, but then, you know, li listening to you talk... Uh, even even that end is is framed in terms of that final ultimate battle between the good and the evil, yes. and in some sense that the outcome is yet to be determined. Right, and also it's not a final judgment. You know, there is a sovereignty to the Hebrew God that just isn't present in. Uh, is it Uhura Mazda? Is that the good God or the evil God in Zoroastrianism? I I always mix the two up. I think it's the good one. Okay, we'll go with that because I like Mazdas. I drive one. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that that's that's something uh, I, I I hadn't really thought a lot about, and then I remembered. Oh yeah, isn't that isn't that a thing? Yeah. But but e even even so, the kind of ultimate control that 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 the Hebrew God represents of of that final outcome that this is a thing that he's doing. Right, and has the capability to do without having any entity in reality able to resist him. That's mm -hmm. pretty uniquely Jewish. I mean, I you know, and then you'll be talking a little bit about Ragnarok a little bit later on, David, but I mean, the, mm -hmm. the Zoroastrian idea of the final struggle, I think, resembles that a lot more than it resembles biblical apocalyptic. Mm. Well, I've been trying to... Um set this up uh, as a conversation that keeps the keeps the discussion literary. Um, it's not our goal in this episode and I, I trust that it's 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 not our goal as a podcast to establish what is the proper eschatology for you, dear listeners. <laughs> um, so mostly we're trying to uh, sidestep the commentary tradition on Daniel Revelation. right go talk to Jeff Waddington. Yes, and instead... You just won't leave the um, Christ the Sinner guys alone today, will you? I, I'm feeling froggy today. You, you've got me thinking in professional wrestler consciousness. You're poking the bear. <laughs> I am. I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we can set up either an academic conference or a Royal Rumble at some point. Good times. <laughs> Anyway, let's go. Let's uh, let's. Uh, well, you know, since since you you feel inclined to get medieval, let's let's actually. All get right. <laughs> um, okay. Any anyone we want to point to in medieval literature that 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 kind of picks up on this apocalyptic voice or subject matter in kind of a literary way, not just commenting on Revelation or Daniel. Certainly, I mean, my personal favorite apocalypse, because it is neither modern nor classical, is Dante's At the End of Purgatory. Uh, he is appropriating all sorts of figures from biblical ap apocalyptic as well as adding his own. He has a dragon with a 
Scorpion Stinger, which sort of mixes the Locust from, well, sort of mixes the Locust and the uh, Dragon from Revelation. Uh, but it becomes a figure for the Avignon Papacy. Uh, so, I mean, it's just a fascinating uh, parade that he has there at the end, because, of course, after all of this happens, uh, there is a circle of symbolic representations of all the books of the Bible. Uh, it is revealed that at the end of all this struggle, God will bring righteousness to Italy. Uh, and, I mean, it's just this wonderful sense that 700 years ago, uh, there was someone out there who thought the end is near, it's in my generation, uh, and I am going to relate this to the people by means of poetry. Now, whether Dante thought of himself in the strain of apocalyptic poets like John, or whether he thought of himself as inventing this apocalypse would involve an act of literary psychology that I'm not going to attempt here. Uh, but it's really just fun to read because it is someone being... Um, Hal Lindsey in the 14th century, which I think is just wonderful. Uh, the, the other one, David, and I'm going to punt this over your way, uh, is from the Norse mythological tradition. Uh, it ends in a final struggle that ends in a rebirth of the world. Uh, I remember it from reading mythology books from the public library as a kid, but you've done this a lot more recently than I have. So, uh, David, take us to Ragnarok. Huzzah. Um, th this, this one's actually kind of interesting. R Ragnarok, um, is, uh, well, the, the, the title of Wagner's opera based on it is the twilight of the gods. Uh, mm -hmm. Ragnarok is that, that last battle in which, um, the Norse gods, uh, come into conflict with their, their ancient enemies, the, the giants of, of, of ice or frost and, the uh, the demons of fire and also the evil dead. So uh, if you're looking for your zombie apocalypse, um, Vikings already got there first. Um, <laughs> the evil dead will uh, sail over to Valhalla on ships made of apparently dead men's fingernails, um, which is kind of odd, but also the more you think about it, terrible. Um, and awesome. And awesome. Uh, that eventually the gods will, uh, you know, in facing these these ancient foes of theirs who have been in opposition to them since creation, um, that the gods will be bested. Uh, that they'll fight their enemies and ultimately destroy all their enemies, but also be uh, destroyed totally in the process. Will they hear the um, lamentation of the women? Um. No, because there's no one left standing at the end. <laughs> ah. Conan was wrong. Um, well, actually, I, I, I tell a lie. The main gods aren't left standing at the end. Mm -hmm. um, the ones you've heard of, like Thor, Odin, Frey, guys like that. Um, the, the, the cast of that, you know, that movie that came out earlier this year. Ba basically, all those guys die. All of them. Um, and that is pretty much where, so far as I've been able to tell, the the oldest Norse texts leave it. Huh. Um, which is uh, it, it's it's a text called the Voluspa, um, the the Oracle, 
the the wise woman's prophecy is somehow sometimes how it's rendered, in which Odin goes to the seer and asks her how things will end, because he doesn't know. And she gives this prophecy of the end, um, which is uh, very much like all those middle chapters of uh, of Revelation. And the last um, the last bit is uh, kind of undeveloped. That you know, after the end, in this, in the last lines, there's she, saw, she, she, a whole shall see standing. Brighter than the sun with gold bedecked, there shall be good people, and a long time happiness will be enjoyed. And then it kind of trickles off there, and you're like, who who exactly are these people? Um, later on, a gentleman named Snorri Sturluson, who collected these fragments of Norse myth and put them together into kind of a version with a plot uh, <laughs> in in what's called the, the prose edda, Snorri's prose edda. Um, frames it as this uh, final apocalyptic battle in which the sons of some gods survive, the sons of uh, a son of Thor survives, I believe a son of Frey survives, and they manage to preserve a last pair of humans um, so that after Ragnarok, the world can be restored because the the two ancient opposed forces have spent all their strength and now... Uh, what remains can rebuild, but uh, there there have been suggestions that uh, that Snorri's more happy ending version has more to do with the fact that he's a Christian <laughs> mm-hmm. than it than it is than it does with uh, the idea that the, that the that the Norse really had a well developed notion of a new heaven and new earth. Um, mostly, the Voluspa, the older source, is just terrible. So yeah, that's that's pretty much how the Vikings in the world. Um, what about uh, what about the Renaissance, Nathan? Any anything apocalypse-ish? E. Oh sure, sure. A uh, couple. I mean, it's all over the place. First of all, so I'm not going to give a representative sample, but I am going to give you two of my favorite moments. Uh, one of them is in the Fairy Queen, uh, the Red Cross Knight, when he's in the House of Holiness, has a vision of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's narrated to him in terms of, you know, the final coming together of holiness. Uh, but interestingly, of course, uh, he is denied access to it, even though he would prefer to stay there in his vision. He is told that he has to return to the church militant, uh, to use a phrase that Spencer doesn't, uh, and to continue to struggle faithfully and wait patiently for that Jerusalem to come. So, I mean, it's definitely something that is, you know, fully Christianized in Spencer, uh, as well as worked into his Christian nationalistic sort of storytelling. The other scene, though, that I want to sit on for a minute is from Henry V, the Shakespeare play. Uh, It is Act 4, Scene 1. And what's fascinating about this scene is that uh, Hal, Henry V, uh, is moving among his troops in the dark the night before uh, the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, and therefore he is invisible, so his soldiers are speaking frankly about what they think about their king. And a soldier named Williams uh, starts talking about the 
horrid injustice of this, this war against France that the king is waging. His critique of the king in this scene uh, starts off with just a general statement of the injustice of the war against France, but then it escalates really into this apocalyptic passage, and I'll go ahead and read a few lines of it here. Uh, but if the cause be not good, the king himself hath a heavy, heavy reckoning to make when all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in battle shall join together at the latter cry, at the latter day, pardon me, and cry, we died at such a place, some swearing, some crying for a surgeon, some upon their wives left poor behind them, some upon the debts they owe, some upon their children rawly left. I am afeard that there are few die well that die in a battle, for how can they charitably dispose of anything when blood is their argument? Now if these men do not die well, it will be a black matter for the king that led them to it, whom to disobey were against all proportion of subjection. Now, uh, I'm not going to read Henry's speech. He basically lays out a Calvinist theory of just war. I wrote a paper about this a few years ago, so I know this passage well. Uh, but what fascinates me about this scene, David, is that when you're talking about the injustice of a war uh, here in Henry V, the mind immediately goes to this apocalyptic judgment, you know, so that... Mm. Uh, it's going to be a judgment on the king, but it's not necessarily going to be a sort of Dantean uh, afterlife where the punishment fits the crime, but rather it's going to be that all of these men who died badly because they died in battle, because they had the thought of murdering another human being just as the sword went through their own brain, uh, you know, these people are going to rise at the final judgment and they're going to be crying out against the king who sent them into this battle. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I think that Again, when we think of uh, sort of modern anti-war texts, whether we're talking about Henry David Thoreau or whether we're talking about, uh, you know, texts from World War I poets or, you know, from the latter half of the 20th century, we very rarely really see this apocalyptic sensibility going on that the main reason that we have to fear an unjust war is because at the final judgment, uh, the injustice of it is going to come to be known. And I think that's just, you know, uh, it's something that is so foreign to my own imagination that every time I read this scene, you know, I, I really have to do some imaginative work to get myself into that mindset. Mm -hmm. I, so it's so evocative though. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, we we've still got in some sense a, a a dismembered army of the dead coming up, but they're taking a totally different role than they did in a, right. And they're not an army Ragnarok. anymore; they are witnesses. Yep. Well, and they seem to be occupying a position that's very like that the army of, uh, or the the well uh, the multitude of of white robed martyrs that stand before the throne. Precisely. Um, in Revelation, yeah, you know, crying for, crying for justice. Uh huh. Um, Anyway, but no, you get the added detail of the fact that they have to reattach their arms before they can do so. <laughs> cool. Well, it, uh, you know, segueing awkwardly across centuries, um, <laughs> which is what we do. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that the apocalyptic voice um, makes something of a comeback in modern English letters, and I'm basing that entirely on how many allusions to Eliot and Yeats surface whenever the end of the world is discussed. Um, you know, and, and listener, you, maybe, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but, uh, 
let's you know get beyond the 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 little snippets of those of those poems that that get tossed out here and uh discuss what I'll find if I actually read the entire poem of Eliot's Hollow Men or Yeats' Second Coming. Well, those are actually two very different poems. Um even though they do kind of get lumped together as you suggest. I'm going to start by talking about Second Coming. I'm going to come I'm, I'm going to I, th- I think it has much more in common with Eliot's Wasteland than it has in common with the Hollow Men, because <clears throat> if you, if you read the Second Coming, Christ is mentioned only um, only tangentially, only really by the title. The rest of the time, he's looking around at the modern world and he sees that it is an absolute jumble, a mess. It has turned away from the things that held the world together. Thus, the famous line: "The center cannot hold." I guess it's things mm-hmm. fall apart the center cannot hold um, so he he's looking and he sees the end of the modern world because that's all he can see when he looks at it because it's such a mess obviously this is the same thing that's happening in the wasteland except the wasteland in addition to seeing the end of the modern world he sees the end of the ancient world as well he sees this kind of explosion of voices and of perspectives that mm. None of which can really connect, and in the end, of course, all he has is these fragments that he shores against the ruins of civilization. So, mm-hmm. Second Coming and the Wasteland both are only able to see the end of the present age. They can't look into the next age. What happens to Eliot between the Wasteland and the Hollow Man, of course, is that he converts to Anglicanism, and he... He some he somehow gets this or suddenly gets this view of history as teleological, and so the Hollowman is a poem about the bankruptcy of the modern age, and so in that it is very similar to the Wasteland. On the other hand, there's something else. He keeps ma- making these references in the Hollowman to death's dream kingdom, and he he talks about them huddled in the desert at the end. They they are they are waiting for the new world, the world beyond beyond the end of the of the current age, and uh, that that's something mm-hmm. that's just not nearly as present if it's present at all in the wasteland of the second coming. So this leads me, I think, into a, I, something I can talk about a little more easily, which is the the modern apocalyptic American novel, and they 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 tend to fall into these two classes. They're they're either the wasteland or the hollow men. They're either all you can see is the end of the current age, or maybe there's a, maybe there's something beyond it. And the, the two best, I think, in in, in the wasteland tradition, are uh, Don DeLillo's White Noise, which involves this sort of environmental disaster. The first half the first half of the book is the kind of mundane lives of this Hitler scholar and his family, and you know it's an academic satire and. It's funny, and then all of a sudden there's this, what they call an airborne toxic event, and uh, everybody's evacuating, everybody's terrified, and then I, I won't I won't spoil too much if you haven't read that book, but the last part of the book is back to the mundanity. So he sees the end of the modern age, and then the modern age fails to end. You almost get a circular view of history, like the ancient Greek view. Um, something, something similar to that, something that builds off of that, I think, is uh, Gary Steingart's book, Super Sad True Love Story, which came out last year. Mm-hmm. And Steingart says that book is set next Tuesday, which I think is a pretty good description of all of these American <laughs> apocalyptic books. It's, it's kind of the very uh-huh. near future. Books have been 
completely abandoned people are glued to their electronic devices. I, if, you, if you're interested in more of the kind of details of the book, I reviewed it on the blog when it back when it came out last year. But uh, again, there is a major disaster this time on the part of a government, and the mundanity kind of continues a afterwards. And uh, I see that much more in the in the tradition of the Second Coming and the Wasteland. But if you want to look at someone who who actually has a new teleology, who's actually looking beyond the quote unquote apocalypse uh, apocalyptic to the post-apocalyptic, you got to look at Walker Percy's books, all of which, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. are in some sense concerned with the end of the world. And often, that is just because the hero sees the bankruptcy of the modern age. But sometimes it's actually because the world is in danger. And so the book uh, Love and the Ruins, which is what I teach in my freshman comp class, is of the second category where there are actually forces that could destroy the world. There's... there's um, there's going to be this huge race riot and political riot and, and the, the main character is the only one who can save it. And, you know, obviously with these apocalyptic novels, you get a great deal of social satire, which is what makes them fun. The, the, all three of these, uh, all, all three of the books I've mentioned are uproariously funny and uh, genuinely frightening <laughs> in their way as well. And that's a good combination to me. But the important thing about Percy is that he sees the garden beyond the desert in a way that Delillo and Steingart, I assume because they are irreligious, cannot. But Percy Percy's a was a devout Catholic. He 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 sees the, the true purpose of apocalyptic, or at least the classical purpose of apocalyptic in a way I don't think those the the other two writers can. And so mm -hmm. um, what I get from all of those books is that when you look at the modern age and now the postmodern age, which of course is what really Percy DeLillo and uh, per and uh, Steingart are reacting to, when you look at the postmodern and modern ages, hoping for the end of them is an appropriate reaction, maybe the <clears throat> only appropriate reaction. Um, yeah. So, do you have anything to add? Uh just. Uh... What's what's the line from Hollow Men that that people always cite? The world ends not with a bang but a whimper. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> just want to hear you say it. <laughs> you know, there's another poem called uh, I think it's called A Song on the End of the World by Cheswolf Miwash, where he he uh, the the end of the world comes and nobody even realizes it. Mm -hmm. Which is which is kind of in the in the, in the same vein, but mm -hmm. I didn't prepare any sort of discussion of that poem, so I right. can't really talk about it. Right, and then there's the Frost poem about the world ending with fire or with ice. I actually don't know that one. Oh, really? And see, I, I didn't prepare it because that wasn't going to be pitched to me, but that, that's, <laughs> one, that's one that I always, hey, don't, 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 don't scoff. <laughs> well, Frost, Frost is always interesting because people think of him as this kind of kind, grandfatherly man. The, the, there, there are a few poets more misanthropic than Robert Frost. Oh, sure, sure. His his poetry is much darker and uglier than people think it is. Much to his credit. <laughs> I mean, as you can tell from the novels I like, I like this kind of hopeless critique of the the modern world. I I, I appreciate it because I mean, it took me a long time to realize this when reading Percy. You have I I wrote my master's thesis and a chapter of my dissertation on uh, the book The Last Gentleman. And The Last mm -hmm. Gentleman, you've got this guy who cannot rem who cannot remember anything. He is hopelessly adrift. He can't find himself in the modern world. And it took me a long time to realize that he's not mentally ill. 
he, oh, okay. he, he is, he, he has these afflictions because that is the only appropriate response to the world he lives in. It is a completely uh. rational and appropriate response. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, realizing that made me realize that when I don't feel at home, uh, you know, that's because that's also an You're appropriate not. reaction. <laughs> right. <laughs> If you look on my, those of you who are Facebook friends with me, uh, can, can look under the About Me section for a quote from uh, Love in the Ruins, where, where it talks about all these things this guy and next Tuesday has has done, and and why they think he's crazy. And then the last line is, despite extensive reconditioning in the Skinner box, <laughs> patient refuses to play along or whatever. Nice. And and, and then you you realize that. What, sometimes what's viewed as insanity, not always, but sometimes what's viewed as insanity is just a refusal to see the modern age as the ultimate age. Right. So and then we don't be steal too much of my fire, Michael, because there might be a an episode on madness sometime. The fire next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's shift to music. You like music, Michael, right? I guess. Okay. <laughs> um... We need to, we need a soundtrack to our end of the world. Um, so are, are we going to go cliche and use REM, or you know I, I would be a little more inclined to use the Doors, or uh, we could get all romantic. Oh come on, I love the end. Oh, it's, um, it would be the most pretentious apocalypse of all time. <laughs> well, I don't know, I don't know. We could do that. We could do the ones with uh with with Wagner. Um, you know that might be a little bit more pretentious and old school. Um, yeah, pick an, pick an apocalyptic song, talk through it. Uh, your turn first, Nate. Oh, all right, I'm going first. All right. Yeah. Uh, you go. Oh, that's right. I guess VI does mean an even number, doesn't it? All yeah. these Roman numerals. Uh, I need to stop doing that. <laughs> Speaking of pretentious. Well, the song that I uh, immediately think of when I think of apocalyptic music is actually a Rolling Stone song, Gimme Shelter. Uh, Michael, do you want to play a few seconds of that? interesting about this is that the, the lyrics don't necessarily scan immediately as literally apocalyptic, but that opening guitar work, that opening backup vocal, uh, I mean, it, it just gives me the mental image of sort of a, a blasted post-war plane with wind whistling over it. Uh, and I mean, I, I can't really, you know, explain physiologically, you know, the analogy there, but that's just the image it gives me. The lyrics itself, that song, of course, you know, uh, the chorus, it's just a shot away, it's just a shot away, 
you know, reflects the anxiety there in the late 60s. Of course, this is the nuclear age. Uh, this is when people still had enough good sense to be worried about nuclear weapons. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it is definitely got a sense all the way through it. You know, uh, the red fire is sweeping on our street today, burns like a red coal carpet. You know, we are coming out of the napalm of Vietnam. We're staring down the radioactive glow of, an, of a nuclear war. Uh, it's a song, like I said, I mean, it's not only the lyrics, but it's also the vocals. Uh, it's also, oh, and I, I can't remember who the backup, uh, I'm looking it up right now. Uh, the Mary Clayton counter vocals uh, just really give it a strong sense of urgency, give it a strong sense of, it's a mix of urgency and despair that just scans apocalyptic to me. So that's my apocalyptic song. Michael, what's your end of the world music? Well, I've always thought of Gimme Shelter as about race riots. Oh, I, mean, okay, I don't know okay. if it is or not, but that's the, I, I must have seen a movie and that was the first time I heard the song or something. Because I've, okay, I've always gotcha. pictured like, well, just of huge course, race now, riots. Unfortunately, my, my students at Emmanuel College think of it as the uh, Call of Duty Black Ops music. Oh, for crying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Well, at least that's war, right? Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, apparently it was the soundtrack to a commercial for that video game. And now that's, well, I mean, kind of like, you know, you can't always get what you want as a funeral song now. Or you, it's you house. can't get away from that. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. they use it. They use it. They've used it three or four times in house. It's, it'll almost certainly be the closing song of that series. And Okay, see, I think of it as the big chill music, so. You know, I saw a production of uh, Chekhov's Seagull, and they uh -huh. started with uh, the boys' choir singing, You Can't Always Get What You Want, which I thought was a little on the nose, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Michael, go ahead. I wanted to talk about the Bright Eyes song, uh, Four Winds, which came out, it's, it's much more recent than Give Me Shelter, it just came out a few years ago. Clash your cast your country, set your name or your tribe There's people always dying, trying to keep them alive There's bodies decomposing in containers tonight In an abandoned building where The squad is made a mural of a Mexican girl With 15 cans of spray paint and a chemical swirl She's standing in the ashes at the end of the world Four winds blowing through her hair But when great that song to me is that he um he envisions the world just completely collapsing under its own weight and he utilizes all these religious metaphors he talks about the great satan he talks about the whore of babylon and then he completely throws out any religious solution so i mean the the second verse begins the the bible's blind the the torah is deaf the quran is mute and if you burned them all together you'd be close to the truth obviously i do not support that viewpoint but what's interesting to me is what survives the end of the world for him and what survives the end of the world is this spray painted little mexican american girl she's spray painted on the side of a uh, warehouse where they store dead bodies after after the war 
they uh, and, and the other thing that survives is Casadego, which is a spiritualist camp in Florida. And so traditional forms of religion have completely failed. Traditional forms of art have completely failed. And all that's left are these more kind of ground level manifestations of uh, art and religion. It's a cool song. I mean, I don't agree with hardly any of it, but it sounds cool. It's it's uh, <laughs> fun to sing along with in my car. Cool. Never heard it before, but then, you know. That I, That's most of the music that Michael listens to I've never heard of before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's sad when I'm the hip one. It really surprised. is. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, because it was re- recorded after 1995. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. No, that's true. Um, well, I well think eventually we will do our old school rap episode, Nathan, and you'll... <laughs> In which we talk about the golden age of Christian rap? Is it, is right. that, is it going to be... <laughs> Um, well, I, I think we need to, you know, kind of wind things down. Um, maybe, you know, end with a bang, not a whimper. Do you not have um, a song, David? What? Do you not have a song? Oh, I already mentioned the doors, but mostly it's just trippy. I he says the end a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's more the atmospherics. It's, you know, it's more the, the sort of kind of the atmospheric soundtrack of my end of the world. Not, that's not what, really that's the what one happens that I want when to you read too much closely. William Blake and then smoke about eight pounds of peyote. <laughs> well, I, though, 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 though the bit where like, like the ancient snake comes out of the lake, I'm like, I have no oh. idea what that means, man. But Neither did he. Come on, snake in the lake. <laughs> oh, I know. Fire on, fire. I, I always thought that referred to Mexico City somehow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, I like it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The end. Um, obviously, the apocalyptic has something to do with Christianity. I don't think that's something we necessarily need to argue for. Um, <laughs> it's not really a step we have to make for our listeners in the way we had to for, like, Aeschylus and stuff. Um still we need some kind of final thoughts on final things um what do you want our uh our our listeners to uh end the podcast thinking about there michael i know we weren't going to get into uh biblical interpretation i'm not going to tell anybody how to interpret the book of revelation i just want to caution them to use herald camping as an example and not get too hung up on any one interpretation and I, I want to suggest that everyone should be what some wag somewhere called a, a pan-millennialist, meaning it would all pan out in the end. The important part, as I said earlier, is not the first 21 chapters of the book of Revelation. It's that 22nd chapter. That's what we should be looking forward to. And let let uh, let God take care of the rest. That That is, that is my advice about Apocalypse. Nathan? And I will go ahead and make a case for those first 21 chapters and say that take a note of their actual literary form. One of the things that I've learned by teaching Revelation, and I've taught it three times in churches over the last seven years or so, uh, is that the role of the faithful in Revelation is not to hasten the end of things. It's not to take up arms in the end of things. It's not even to predict the end of things. It is to bear witness to Christ in the end of things. So I would say, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would say, uh, bear patiently, sing praises to the Lord. And you've basically got the spirit of revelation 
wrapped up. Mm. Good advice. Well, I just want to toss in. I think we we've, we've done enough kind of cultural survey to to be able to make the observation that the apocalypse is something that captures uh, people's attention. There's just something about ending the world that makes mm-hmm. people sit up and take notice. Um, For some reason. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine why, but uh, you know, it, it it is it is something that um, that 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 captures the imagination, um, and I think it's it's something that Christians can can turn to as a you know as a uh, a way of getting their own message out. It, is that uh, basically we inherited the apocalyptic? The apocalypse is ours. You know, it's the world that has the cycles. We have the end, and um, in in some ways, the revelation—not you know, multi-headed beasts and you know all of the all of that stuff—but in some way, the John's apocalypse is Christianity's great gift that they can give to the world. That um, there will be an end. This will not continue forever, and what is after that end will be. The resolution, um, and so, so yeah, I, I I think it's something that we can that we can turn to, and not 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 be afraid of talking about that that last embar- you know that last book of the Bible, which I think so, sometimes uh, some some Christians I think can can look at the Book of Revelation as kind of the embarrassing uncle who just says things that we feel we 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 have to explain to strangers so that oh, they. Sure. Don't, Get and we scared should, off. <laughs> and we should note that this is not just liberal snobs. I mean, Martin Luther oh, had serious re- reservations about the apocalypse. Right. Ditto Eusebius. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this this is a book that has been problematic um, for a long time. But sure. if we if we approach it the right way, I think it's, you know, it's, it's the great gift that we can offer. Um, because, you know, that, that, that last chapter of Revelation is what the cross ultimately achieves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much where I wanted to take this conversation. Um, what's next week's conversation about? We are going to continue our discussion of the apocalypse with a discussion of reality television. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, sir. I've been waiting Uh, all week to make that joke. Uh, Lord deliver us how long until your justice falls upon our oppressors. Speaking of suffering. <laughs> All right. Well, you have that to look forward to, listeners. Um, in the meanwhile, if uh, we left out your favorite apocalypse, um, if you want to back me up on the doors, come on, man. You, you know you're out there. Um, if uh, any, any other kind of commentary, you can uh, – Comment on the show notes when they post on uh, our blog, ChristianHumanist.org, or you can uh, send us an email, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back to iTunes after downloading it um, and, you know, give us a good rating. Todd Howard did. Um, You know, (laughs) so, you know, you can too. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, and I'm uh, wishing you a grand, grand week uh, for Michael Farmer and for Nathan Gilmore, and leave you with Luther, Luther's great advice um, to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger. Had a dream, you and me in the war of the end times.
come to the fault line We heave relief As scores of innocents die And the Andalusian tribes Setting the lay of Nebraska line hmm. The show has ended, but we're, we're still here. That's, that's really strange, guys. Am I alone? Still there. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm not alone in this. Nathan, I've been raptured. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, oh. the end has come, and we've survived. So um, it seems appropriate to to return to the post-apocalyptic for a little bit. Um, you know what? That that seems to be something that that shows up in. Uh, and in our, our our pop culture a lot, so you know what's what's the post apocalyptic all about there uh, there Nathan and or, or yeah you know actually Michael yeah that's 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 who fields this one oh this uh, this is an even number yeah so why why are we so fascinated <laughs> with uh, sticking around after the end well first of all there's two kinds of post apocalyptic artifacts that I'm familiar with. Uh, one of them I, I would call the Mad Max group, and that is the kind, you know, where uh, the Earth remains eternally blasted, uh, and that really the only goods that ever come of it are the human connections that exist in spite of the blasted Earth. So, I mean, you're thinking about something like Samuel Beckett's plays, you're thinking about something like the Mad Max movies, uh, you're really looking at a context in which the world has abandoned humanity and all humanity has to turn to is itself. Now, the one that I find more interesting because it cheats uh, is the, what I call the space voyage post-apocalyptic. Uh, this is the sort of thing that you find in the Joss Whedon film, Titan AE, the Joss Whedon television series, uh, Firefly, uh, and also that you find in the new Battlestar Galactica. And I want to sit on that one for a little bit because what it does is the series, which is a wonderful series, uh, the folks at CWC also like this series, which shows that they have good taste in that respect. Uh, <clears throat> but the series starts out in a decidedly apocalyptic frame. Uh, you've got the attack of the Cylons, a species of... And I call it a species because they've become organic robots, basically. Uh, they can manufacture each other, so therefore they're a self-sustaining uh, sort of organism. Uh, and they attack the Earth with a nuclear bombard. Well, no, it's not the Earth. It's the 12 planets. They attack the 12 planets with, the, with a nuclear bombard, wipe out most of the population, reduce the population of human beings to about 50,000. And those 50,000 are traveling through space on the Battlestar Galactica. Of course, Battlestar is a play on Battleship. Uh, and they are searching for the legendary 13th planet called Earth. Now, that's where you start out in a very post-apocalyptic frame. They're fighting for survival. They are enjoying each other uh, emotionally, psychologically, sexually, and otherwise. They are definitely doing that post-apocalyptic Mad Max thing. But then by the end you start getting this refrain of all this has happened before and all this will happen again, which to a literate ear starts to set off alarms because you realize this is not apocalyptic at all. This is starting to go into that cyclical history, that classic uh -huh. Levantine Greek history 
uh, in which there is no historical movement forward, but only a historical cycle. And in the season, in the series finale, so mute your podcast if you haven't seen it. I'm about to spoil it. Uh, you find out that, in fact, the crew of the Galactica ends up being the long, long lost ancestors of the planet Earth as we know it now. You find out that the 12 planets were actually descended from another species that destroyed itself, who in turn were descended from a species who destroyed itself, who in turn were des- descended from a species who destroyed itself. It's all very and so what you get. What now? Yeah, and oh yeah, yeah. And what you end up with is not apocalyptic at all, but a very Hellenistic, cyclical vision of civilization. It's basically a Nietzschean eternal return. Uh, So I mean, really, what fascinates me about what we call post-apocalyptic is it is actually doing an end run around the true scandal of the apocalypse. Michael, I've talked entirely too long. What would you have to add to that? Uh, Just what you said there at the end, that that it's a a very, very different vision from... Both of those are very different visions from the Christian apocalypse, which once again ends in Uh the garden beyond the desert. Right. And not Mm -hmm. the Tupac Shakur video. Or or Tom Petty. Right. (laughs) I don't rap as much as you do, Nathan. Well... So in your taxonomy, uh, taxonomy there, Nathan, does that mean that Wally is in in some way a a combination of both of them? Because the and humans the have a well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I I think that Wally is definitely playing into a cyclical version of history because if you look at the ending credits of Wally, uh, as the music is playing, the credits display over a series of visual representations of Wally starting with ancient Egyptian style Wally pictures and eventually going on through Renaissance realism and impressionism and you know also basically it's a a history of art that indicates that the new human civilization that boots back up so to speak after the axiom uh axiom uh returns to the planet will itself go through another progression of human civilization and of course the irony of that that you know my six-year-old son doesn't pick up on and i'm glad he doesn't uh is that probably they'll end up in space again yeah (laughs) (laughs) because they're gonna screw it up again so i i I think that wally is decidedly that science fiction eternal return rather than an apocalyptic vision Mm. i was just thinking because because you're gonna I, i didn't think about the end credits but you have the the garden regrowing from the desert Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, I, and may, but maybe I'm making, maybe it's not an eternal garden. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm being too Derrida in here and making the end credits just as important as the movie itself. But I mean, when they rolled the end credits, when I first took my son to see that movie, it just depressed the heck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, see that, dude? That's because you're 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 Calvinist enough to not think <laughs> that all those you know blue suited you know chubby human beings who've recolonized the earth are going to somehow get it better get it right the second time <laughs> you know so, so you would make a calvinist of me <laughs> well i I, th- I think you've already kind of done it yourself man and I, 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 th- I think i think you know that the as 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 earnest as the the chubby blue suited people are um about getting things right um they're humans 
<laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to make a you know give, give a shout out to um, you know to an anonymous Anglo-Saxon poet who I always think of when I watch Wally, which you know I love Wally, especially before he actually discovers humans. You know, while he's oh you know, yeah, kind of yeah. Right. the lone yeah. survivor in the world of trash. Um, and uh, last time I, I, I taught a, a Britlet survey, I taught the the old English poem "The Wanderer," ah. in which you have this this lone exile who's, you know, he he has no place. He he he's he's a wanderer. He he's not plugged into any society. His world has fallen apart. And there's a moment in which he shows up at these these ruins. Uh, this uh, what what he calls a a city of giants. Um, that is now empty, and all all that all that's around is, you know, just a howling wasteland in this in this decayed ruin. And he takes this his speculation of his ruin, and he imagines it to be universal. Um, the lines are: "A wise hero must realize how terrible it will be when all the wealth of this world lies waste." As now in various places throughout this Middle Earth, walls stand blown by wind, covered with frost, storm swept the buildings. Um, in other words, he takes his own little personal apocalypse. His world is ended. Um, his king is dead. His kingdom is gone. Uh, there are other kingdoms out there. He just isn't in it. He isn't in one of those. But he, he takes his personal apocalypse and then imagines that out into a universal apocalypse. Uh, how terrible! It, how terrible it will be when all the world lies waste, um, and imagines himself as the last man standing, so to speak, um, the last man on earth, Will Smith style. Um, so, when does he throw so, up yeah. on his che- uh, shirt and there's Rosie on his chest? Um, I think we've uh, I think we've lost the manuscript in which the uh, the, the poet <laughs> did that particular detail. Um. But so if in, you're keeping in, track in, at home, that's two Dion references in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> we any, now anyhow, run out of Dion anyhow. songs that I know, so. Yeah, so so the post-apocalyptic, also the image of the road. Um, mm. You know, I, I pulled up a whole bunch of, of movie covers when we were looking at The Wanderer. At, you know, uh, I Am Legend, you have Will Smith all by himself on a road with ruins. Uh, that movie, The Road... Um, it's well, Aragorn with some kid on a road. <laughs> of course, it's based on a um, Cormac McCarthy novel, mm-hmm. which I haven't. Yeah, read. <laughs> you know, but the book of Book of Eli is, uh, you know, the man with the most gravitas in the world, all by himself on a road amidst ruins. There's in yeah, there's just something about the lone man on the road having no place to settle down. Um, amidst amidst the ruins of civilization, that's just so evocative, and we we just keep coming back to that image. But it's an image that's been, frankly, at least part of the English lit tradition for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, well, we got to end this in some way. Um, so <laughs> again. we already again. <laughs> um, but you know what? This is a cycle. We're just going to do this next week. Um, <laughs> You know, maybe one day there will be an apocalypse of the Christian Humanist podcast, but you know, eventually one we'll of us keep is going to die. As as we can. Eventually, eventually there will be you know some kind of universal eschaton, or at least a personal eschaton. Um, 
you know, the end will come. But in the meantime, we'll keep the cycle up as much as we can. So, you know, send strong, faith stronger, all that kind of stuff. Check with y'all later. Had a dream, you and me in the war of the end times. And I believe California succumbed to the fault line. We heaved relief as scores of innocents died. Supply side bomb.